Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests to talk about the originator of the, what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, Radio Free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to time. The Mysteries of Rodolfo, Volume 2, Chapter 9, Part 2 of 2. Early on the following morning, as Emily crossed the hall to the ramparts, she heard a noisy bustle in the courtyard and the clatter of horses' hoofs. Such unusual sounds excited her curiosity and instead of going to the ramparts, she went to an upper casement, from whence she saw, in the court below, a large party of horsemen dressed in singular but uniform habit, and completely, though variously, armed. They wore a kind of short jacket, composed of black and scarlet, and several of them had a cloak of plain black, which covering the person entirely hung down to the stirrups. As one of these cloaks glanced aside, she saw beneath daggers, apparently of different sizes, tucked into the horseman's belt. She further observed that these were carried in the same manner by many of the horsemen without cloaks, most of whom bore also pikes or javelins. On their heads were the small Italian caps, some of which were distinguished by black feathers. Whether these caps gave fierce air to the countenance, or that these countenances they surmounted had naturally such an appearance, Emily thought she had never, till then, seen an assemblance of faces so savage and terrific. While she gazed, she almost fancied herself surrounded by banditti, and a vague thought glanced athwart her fancy, that Montoni was the captain of the group before her, and that this castle was to be the place of rendezvous. The strange and horrible supposition was but momentary, though her reason could supply none more probable, and though she discovered among the band the strangers she had formerly noticed with so much alarm, who were now distinguished by the black plume. While she continued gazing, Cavini, Verezzi, and Bertolini came forth from the hall, habited like the rest, except that they wore hats, with a mixed plume of black and scarlet, and that their arms differed from those of the rest of the party. As they mounted their horses, Emily was struck with the exulting joy expressed on the visage of Verezzi, while Cavini was gay, yet with a shade of thought on his countenance. And as he managed his horse with dexterity, his graceful and commanding figure, which exhibited the majesty of a hero, had never appeared to more advantage. Emily, as she observed him, thought he somewhat resembled Valancourt in the spirit and dignity of his person, but she looked in vain for the noble, benevolent countenance, the soul's intelligence which overspread the features of the latter. As she was hoping, she scarcely knew why that Montoni would accompany the party, he appeared at the hall door, but unaccoutred. Having carefully observed the horsemen, conversed a while with the cavaliers, and bidden them farewell, the band wheeled round the court, and, led by Verezzi, issued forth under the portcullis. 
Montoni followed to the portal, and gazing after them for some time, Emily then retired from the casement, and now, certain of being unmolested, went to walk on the ramparts, from whence she soon after saw the party winding among the mountains to the west, appearing and disappearing between the woods, till distance confused their figures, consolidated their numbers, and only a dingy mass appeared moving along the heights. Emily observed that no workmen were on the ramparts, and that the repairs of the fortifications seemed to be completed. While she sauntered thoughtfully on, she heard distant footsteps, and raising her eyes saw several men lurking under the castle walls, who were evidently not workmen, but looked as if they would have accorded well with the party, which was gone. Wondering where Annette had hid herself so long, who might have explained some of the late circumstances, and then considering that Madame Montoni was probably risen, she went to her dressing room, where she mentioned what had occurred, but Madame Montoni either would not, or could not, give any explanation of the event. The Signor's reserve to his wife on this subject was probably nothing more than usual, yet to Emily it gave an air of mystery to the whole affair that seemed to hint there was danger, if not villainy, in his schemes. Annette presently came, and as usual was full of alarm, to her lady's eager inquiries of what she had heard among the servants. She replied, Ah, madame, nobody knows what is all about, but old Carlo, he knows well enough, I dare say, but he is as close as his master. Some say the signor is going out to frighten the enemy, as they call it. But where is the enemy? Then others say, he's going to take away somebody's castle. But I am sure he has room enough in his own without taking other people's. And I am sure I should like it a great deal better if there were more people to fill it. Ah, you will soon have your wish, I fear, replied Madame Montoni. No, Madame, but such ill-looking fellows are not worth having. I mean such gallant smart, merry fellows as Ludovico, who is always telling droll stories to make one laugh. It was but yesterday he told me such a humorsome tale. I can't help laughing at it now. Says he, well, we can dispense with the story, said her lady. Ah, continued Annette, he sees a great way farther than other people. Now he sees into all the signor's meaning without knowing a word about the matter. How is that, said Madame Montoni. Why, he says, but he made me promise not to tell, and I would not disoblige him for the world. What is it he made you promise not to tell, said her lady sternly. I insist upon knowing immediately. What is it he made you promise? Oh, madame, cried Annette, I would not tell for the universe. I insist upon your telling this instant, said madame Montoni. Oh, dear madame, I would not tell for a hundred sequins. You would not have me forswear myself, madam, exclaimed Annette. I will not wait another moment, said Madame Montoni. Annette was silent. The Signor shall be informed of this directly, rejoined her mistress. He will make you discover all. It is Ludovico who has discovered, said Annette. But for mercy's sake, madame, don't tell the Signor, and you shall know all directly. Madame Montoni said that she would not. Well then, madame, Ludovico says that the signor, my master, is, is, that is, he only thinks so, 
and anybody, you know, madame, is free to think that the Signor, my master, is... is... is what? said her lady impatiently. That the Signor, my master, is going to be a great robber. That is, he is going to rob on his own account, to be... but I am sure I don't understand what he means. To be a captain of robbers. Art thou in thy senses, Annette? said Madame Montoni. Or is this a trick to deceive me? Tell me this instant what Ludovico did say to thee. No evocations, this instant. Nay, Madame, cried Annette, if this is all I am to get for having told the secret. Her mistress thus continued to insist, and Annette to protest, till Montoni himself appeared, who bade the latter leave the room, and she withdrew, trembling for the fate of her story. Emily also was retiring, but her aunt desired she would stay, and Montoni had so often made her a witness of their contention that he no longer had scruples on that account. "'I insist upon knowing this instant, Signor, what all this means,' said his wife. "'What are all these armed men, whom they tell me I've gone out about?' Montoni answered her only with a look of scorn and Emily whispered something to her. "'It does not signify,' said her aunt. "'I will know, and I will know, too, what the castle has been fortified for.' "'Come, come,' said Montoni. "'Other business brought me here. "'I must be trifled with no longer. "'I have immediate occasion for what I demand. "'Those estates must be given up without fear of their contention. "'Or I may find a way—' "'They shall never be given up,' interrupted Madame Montoni. They never shall enable you to carry on your wild schemes. But what are these? I will know. Do you expect the castle to be attacked? Do you expect enemies? Am I to be shut up here to be killed in a siege? Sign the writing, said Montoni, and you shall know more. What enemy can be coming? continued his wife. Have you entered into the service of the state? Am I to be blocked up here to die? That may possibly happen, said Montoni, unless you yield to my demand. For, come what may, you shall not quit the castle till then. Madame Montoni burst into loud lamentation, which she as suddenly checked, considering that her husband's assertions might be only artifices, employed to extort her consent. She hinted this suspicion, and in the next moment told him also that his designs were not so honorable as to serve the state and that she believed that he had only commenced as a captain of Medici to join the enemies of Venice in plundering and laying waste the surrounding country. Montoni looked at her for a moment with a steady and stern countenance, while Emily trembled, and his wife for once thought she had said too much. "'You shall be removed this night,' said he, "'to the East Turret. There, perhaps, you may understand the danger of offending a man who has an unlimited power over you.' Emily now fell at his feet, and with tears of terror supplicated for her aunt, who sat, trembling with fear and indignation, now ready to pour forth execrations, and now to join the intercessions of Emily. Montoni, however, soon interrupted these entreaties with an horrible oath, and as he burst from Emily, leaving his cloak in her hand, she fell to the floor with a force that occasioned her a severe blow on the forehead but he quitted the room without attempting to raise her, whose attention was called from herself 
by a deep groan from Madame Montoni, who continued otherwise unmoved in her chair, and had not fainted. Emily, hastening to her assistance, saw her eyes rolling and her features convulsed. Having spoken to her without receiving an answer, she brought water and supported her head while she held it to her lips, but the increasing convulsion soon compelled Emily to call for assistance. On her way through the hall in search of Annette, she met Montoni, whom she told what had happened, and conjured to return and comfort her aunt, but he turned silently away with a look of indifference and went out upon the ramparts. At length she found old Carlo and Annette, and they hastened to the dressing room where Madame Montoni had fallen on the floor and was lying in strong convulsions. Having lifted her into the adjoining room and laid her on the bed, the force of her disorder still made all their strength necessary to hold her, while Annette trembled and sobbed, and old Carlo looked silently and piteously on as his feeble hands grasped those of his mistress, till, turning his eyes upon Emily, he exclaimed, Good God, Signora, what is the matter? Emily looked calmly at him, and saw his inquiring eyes fixed on her, and Annette, looking up, screamed loudly, for Emily's face was stained with blood, which continued to fall slowly from her forehead, but her attention had been so entirely occupied by the scene before her, that she had felt no pain from the wound. She now held a handkerchief to her face, and notwithstanding her faintness, continued to watch Madame Montoni, the violence of whose convulsions was abating, till at length they ceased, and left her in a kind of stupor. My aunt must remain quiet, said Emily. Go, good Carlo. If we should want your assistance, I will send for you. In the meantime, if you have an opportunity, speak kindly of your mistress to your master. Alas, said Carlo, I have seen too much. I have little influence with the signor. But do, dear lady, take some care of yourself. That is an ugly wound, and you look sadly. Thank you, my friend, for your consideration, said Emily, smiling kindly. The wound is trifling. It came by a fall. Carlo shook his head and left the room, and Emily, with Annette, continued to watch by her aunt. Did my lady tell the signor what Ludovico said, Mamsuel? asked Annette in a whisper. But Emily quieted her fears on the subject. I thought what this quarreling would come to, continued Annette. I suppose the signor has been beating my lady. No, no, Annette, you are totally mistaken. Nothing extraordinary has happened. Why, extraordinary things happen here so often, Mademoiselle, that there is nothing in them. Here is another legion of those ill-looking fellows come to the castle this morning. Hush, Annette. You will disturb my aunt. We will talk of that by and by. They continued watching silently till Madame Montoni uttered a low sigh when Emily took her hand and spoke soothingly to her. But the former gazed with unconscious eyes, and it was long before she knew her niece. Her first words then inquired for Montoni, to which Emily replied by an entreaty that she would compose her spirits and consent to be kept quiet, adding that if she wished any message to be conveyed to him, she would herself deliver it. No, said her aunt faintly, no, I have nothing new to tell him. Does he persist in saying I shall be removed from my chamber? 
Emily replied that he had not spoken on the subject since Madame Montoni heard from him, and then she tried to divert her attention to some other topic, but her aunt seemed to be inattentive to what was said and lost in secret thoughts. Emily, having brought her some refreshment, now left her to the care of Annette, and went in search of Montoni, whom she found on a remote part of the rampart, conversing among a group of the men described by Annette. They stood round him with fierce yet subjugated looks, while he, speaking earnestly and pointing to the walls, did not perceive Emily, who remained at some distance, waiting till he should be at leisure, and observing involuntarily the appearance of one man, more savage than his fellows, who stood resting on his pike, and looking over the shoulders of a comrade at Montoni, to whom he listened with uncommon earnestness. This man was apparently of low condition, yet his looks appeared not to acknowledge the superiority of Montoni, as did those of his companions, and sometimes they even assumed an air of authority, which the decisive manner of the signor could not repress. Some few words of Montoni then passed in the wind, and as the men were separating, she heard him say, This evening, then begin the watch at sunset. At sunset, signor, replied one or two of them, and walked away, while Emily approached Montoni, who appeared desirous of avoiding her. But though she observed this, she had courage to proceed. She endeavored to intercede once more for her aunt representing to him her sufferings, and urged the danger of exposing her to a cold apartment in her present state. She suffers by her own folly, said Montoni, and is not to be pitied. She knows how she may avoid these sufferings in future. If she is removed to the turret, it will be her own fault. Let her be obedient and sign the writings you heard of, and I will think no more of it. When Emily ventured still to plead, he sternly silenced and rebuked her for interfering in his domestic affairs, but at length dismissed her with this concession, that he would not remove Madame Montoni on the ensuing night, but allow her till the next two to consider whether she would resign her settlements, or be imprisoned in the east turret of the castle. Where she shall find, he added, a punishment she may not expect. Emily then hastened to inform her aunt of this short respite, and of the alternative that awaited her, to which the latter made no reply, but appeared thoughtful, while Emily, in consideration of her extreme languor, wished to soothe her mind by leading it to less interesting topics. And though these efforts were unsuccessful, and Madame Montoni became peevish, her resolution on the contended point seemed somewhat to relax, and Emily recommended as her only means of safety, that she should submit to Montoni's demand. You know not what you advise, said her aunt. Do you understand that these estates will descend to you at my death if I persist in a refusal? I was ignorant of that circumstance, madame, replied Emily, but the knowledge of it cannot withhold me from advising you to adopt the conduct which not only your peace, but I fear your safety requires, and I entreat that you will not suffer a consideration comparatively so trifling to make you hesitate a moment in resigning them. Are you sincere, niece? Is it possible that you can doubt it, madame? Her aunt appeared to be affected. You are not unworthy of these estates, niece, said she, 
I would wish to keep them for your sake. You show a virtue I did not expect. How have I deserved this reproof, madame? said Emily scornfully. Reproof? replied madame Matoni. I meant to praise your virtue. Alas, here is no exertion of virtue, rejoined Emily, for here is no temptation to be overcome. Yet Monsieur Valancourt, said her aunt, Oh, madame, interrupted Emily, anticipating what she would have said, do not let me glance on that subject. Do not let my mind be strained with a wish so shockingly self-interested. She immediately changed the topic and continued with Madame Montoni till she withdrew to her apartment for the night. At that hour, the castle was perfectly still, and every inhabitant of it, except herself, seemed to have retired to rest. As she passed along the wide and lonely galleries, dusky and silent, she felt forlorn and apprehensive of she scarcely knew what. But when, entering the corridor, she recollected the incident of the preceding night, a dread seized her, lest a subject of alarm similar to that which had befallen Annette should occur to her, and which, whether real or ideal, would, she felt, have an almost equal effect upon her weakened spirits. The chamber to which Annette had alluded, she did not exactly know, but understood it to be one of those she must pass on the way to her own, and sending a fearful look forward to the gloom, she stepped lightly and cautiously along, till, coming to a door from whence issued a low sound, she hesitated and paused, and during the delay of that moment her fears so much increased that she had no power to move from the spot. Believing that she heard a human voice within, she was somewhat revived, but in the next moment the door was opened, and a person, whom she conceived to be Montoni, appeared, who instantly started back and closed it, though not before she had seen, by the light that burned in the chamber, another person, sitting in a melancholy attitude by the fire. Her terror vanished, but her astonishment only began, which was now roused by the mysterious secrecy of Montoni's manner, and by the discovery of a person whom he thus visited at midnight in an apartment which had long been shut up, and of which such extraordinary reports were circulating. While she thus continued hesitating, strongly prompted to watch Montoni's motions, yet fearing to irritate him by appearing to notice them, the door was again opened cautiously and as instantly closed as before. She then stepped softly to her chamber, which was the next one to this, but, having put down her lamp, returned to an obscure coroner of the corridor to observe the proceedings of this half-seen person and to ascertain whether it was indeed Montoni. Having waited in silent expectation for a few minutes, with her eyes fixed on the door, it was again opened, and the same person appeared, whom she now knew to be Montoni. He looked cautiously round without perceiving her, then, stepping forward, closed the door and left the corridor. Soon after, Emily heard the door fastened on the inside, and she withdrew to her chamber, wondering at what she had witnessed. It was now twelve o'clock. As she closed her casement, she heard footsteps on the terrace below, and saw imperfectly, through the gloom, several persons advancing who passed under the casement. 
She then heard the clink of arms, and in the next moment, the watchword. When recollecting the command she had overheard from Montoni, and the hour of the night, she understood that these men were, for the first time, relieving guard in the castle. Having listened till all again was still, she retired to sleep. End of Volume 2, Chapter 9, Part 2 of 2《ミステリーズ・ブドルフォー》by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 2, Chapter 10, Part 1 of 2. And shall no lay of death with pleasing murmur soothe her parted soul? Shall no tear wet her grave? Sayers. On the following morning, Emily went early to the apartment of Madame Montoni, who had slept well and was much recovered. Her spirits had also returned with her health, and her resolution to oppose Montoni's demands revived, though it yet struggled with her fears, which Emily, who trembled for the consequence of further opposition, endeavored to confirm. Her aunt, as has been already shown, had a disposition which delighted in contradiction, and which taught her, when unpleasant circumstances were offered to her understanding, not to inquire into their truth. But to seek for arguments by which she might make them appear false. Long habit had so entirely confirmed this natural propensity that she was not conscious of possessing it. Emily's remonstrances and representations therefore roused her pride instead of alarming or convincing her judgment, and she still relied upon the discovery of some means by which she might yet avoid submitting to the demand of her husband. Considering that if she could once escape from his castle, she might defy his power, and obtaining a decisive separation live in comfort on the estates that yet remained for her, she mentioned this to her niece, who accorded with her in the wish, but differed from her as to the probability of its completion. She represented the impossibility of passing the gates, secured and guarded as they were. And the extreme danger of committing her design to the discretion of a servant who might purposely betray, or accidentally disclose it. Montoni's vengeance would also disdain restraint if her intention was detected. And though Emily wished as fervently as she could to regain her freedom and return to France, she consulted only Madame Montoni's safety, and persevered in advising her to relinquish her settlement without braving further outrage. The struggle of contrary emotions, however, continued to rage in her aunt's bosom, and she still brooded over the chance of effecting an escape. While she thus sat, Montoni entered the room, and without noticing his wife's indisposition, said that he came to remind her of the impolicy of trifling with him, and that he gave her only till the evening to determine whether she would consent to his demand or compel him, by a refusal, to remove her to the east turret. He added that a party of cavaliers would dine with him that day, and that he expected that she would sit at the head of the table, where Emily also must be present. Madame Montoni was now on the point of uttering an absolute refusal, but suddenly considering that her liberty during this entertainment, though circumscribed, might favor her plans, she acquiesced with seeming reluctance, and Montoni soon after left the apartment. His command struck Emily with surprise and apprehension, who shrank from the thought of being exposed to the gaze of strangers such as her fancy represented these to be, 
and the words of Count Morano, now again recollected, it did not soothe her fears. When she withdrew to prepare for dinner, she dressed herself with even more simplicity than usual, that she might escape observation, a policy which did not avail her, for as she repassed her aunt's apartment, she was met by Mantoni, who censured what he called her prudish appearance, and insisted that she should wear the most splendid dress she had, even that which had been prepared for her intended nuptials with Count Morano, and which, it now appeared, her aunt had carefully brought with her from Venice. This was made not in the Venetian, but in the Neapolitan fashion, so as to set off the shape and figure to the utmost advantage. In it, her beautiful chestnut tresses were negligently bound up in pearls, and suffered to fall back again on her neck. The simplicity of a better taste than Madame Montoni's was conspicuous in this dress, splendid as it was, and Emily's unaffected beauty never had appeared more captivingly. She had now only to hope that Montoni's order was prompted not by any extraordinary design, but by an ostentation of displaying his family richly attired to the eyes of strangers. Yet nothing less than his absolute command could have prevailed with her to wear a dress that had been designed for such an offensive purpose, much less to have worn it on this occasion. As she descended to dinner, the emotion of her mind threw a faint blush over her countenance, and heightened its interesting expression, for timidity had made her linger in her apartment till the utmost moment, and when she entered the hall, in which a kind of state dinner was spread, Montoni and his guests were already seated at the table. She was then going to place herself by her aunt, but Montoni waved his hand, and two of the cavaliers rose and seated her between them. The eldest of these was a tall man, with strong Italian features, an aquiline nose, and dark, penetrating eyes that flashed with fire when his mind was agitated, and even in its state of rest retained somewhat of the wildness of the passions. His visage was long and narrow, and his complexion of a sickly yellow. The other, who appeared to be about forty, had features of a different cast, yet Italian, and his look was slow subtle and penetrating. His eyes of a dark gray were small and hollow. His complexion was a sunburnt brown, and the contour of his face, though inclined to oval, was irregular and ill-formed. Eight other guests sat round the table, who were all dressed in a uniform, and had all an expression more or less of a wild fierceness of subtle design or of licentious passions. As Emily timidly surveyed them, she remembered the scene of the preceding morning, and again almost fancied herself surrounded by banditti. Then, looking back to the tranquility of her early life, she felt scarcely less astonishment than grief at her present situation. The scene in which they sat assisted the illusion. It was an ancient hall, gloomy from the style of its architecture, from its great extent, and because almost the only light it received was from one large Gothic window and from a pair of folding doors which, being open, admitted likewise a view of the west rampart with wild mountains of the Apennine beyond. The middle compartment of this hall rose into a vaulted roof enriched with fretwork and supported on three sides by pillars of marble. Beyond these, long colonnades retired in gloomy grandeur till their extent was lost in twilight. 
the lightest footsteps of the servants as they advanced through these were returned in whispering echoes, and their figures, seen at a distance imperfectly through the dusk, frequently awakened Emily's imagination. She looked alternately at Montoni, at his guests, and on the surrounding scene, and then, remembering her dear native province, her pleasant home, and the simplicity and goodness of the friends whom she had lost, grief and surprise again occupied her mind. When her thoughts could return from these considerations, she fancied she observed an air of authority towards his guests, such as she had never before seen him assume. Though he had always been distinguished by a haughty carriage, there was something also in the manners of the strangers that seemed perfectly, though not servilely, to acknowledge his superiority. During dinner, the conversation was chiefly on war and politics. They talked with energy of the state of Venice, its dangers, the character of the reigning doge, and of the chief senators, and then spoke of the state of Rome. When the repast was over, they rose, and each filling his goblet with wine from the gilded ewer that stood beside him, drank, Success to our exploits! Montoni was lifting his goblet to his lips to drink this toast, when suddenly the wine hissed, rose to the brim, and as he held the glass from him, it burst into a thousand pieces. To him, who constantly used that sort of Venice glass which had the quality of breaking upon receiving poison liquor, a suspicion that some of his guests had endeavored to betray him instantly occurred, and he ordered all the gates to be closed, drew his sword, and looking round on them, who stood in silent amazement, exclaimed, Here is a traitor among us. Let those that are innocent assist in discovering the guilty. Indignation flashed from the eyes of the cavaliers, who all drew their swords, and Madame Montoni, terrified at what might ensue, was hastening from the hall when her husband commanded her to stay. But his further words could not now be distinguished, for the voice of every person rose together. His order that all the servants should appear was at length obeyed, and they declared their ignorance of any deceit, a protestation which could not be believed, for it was evident that, as Montoni's liquor, and his only had been poisoned, a deliberate design had been formed against his life, which could not have been carried so far towards its accomplishment without the connivance of the servant who had the care of the wine-ewers. This man, with another whose face betrayed either the consciousness of guilt or the fear of punishment, Montoni ordered to be chained instantly and confined in a strong room which had formerly been used as a prison. Thither, likewise, he would have sent all his guests, had he not foreseen the consequence of so bold and unjustifiable a proceeding. As to those, therefore, he contended himself with swearing that no man should pass the gates till this extraordinary affair had been investigated, and then sternly bade his wife retire to her apartment, whether he suffered Emily to attend her. In about half an hour he followed to the dressing room, and Emily observed with horror his dark countenance and quivering lip, and heard him denounce vengeance on her aunt. "'It will avail you nothing,' said he to his wife, to deny the fact. "'I have proof of your guilt. Your only chance of mercy rests on a full confession. There is nothing to hope from sullenness or falsehood. Your accomplice has confessed all.' Emily's fainting spirits were roused by astonishment as she heard her aunt accused of a crime so atrocious that she could not for a moment admit the possibility of her guilt. Meanwhile, Madame Montoni's agitation did not permit her to reply. Alternately, her complexion varied from livid paleness to crimson flush, 
and she trembled, but whether with fear or with indignation, it were difficult to decide. Spare your words, said Montoni, seeing her about to speak. Your countenance makes full confession of your crime. You shall be instantly removed to the East Turret. This accusation, said Madame Montoni, speaking with difficulty, is used only as an excuse for your cruelty. I disdain to reply to it. You do not believe me guilty. Signor, said Emily solemnly, this dreadful charge I would answer with my life is false. Nay, Signor, she added, observing the severity of his countenance. This is no moment for restraint on my part. I do not scruple to tell you that you are deceived, most wickedly deceived, by the suggestion of some person who aims at the ruin of my aunt. It is impossible that you could yourself have imagined a crime so hideous. Montoni, his lips trembling more than before, replied only, If you value your own safety, addressing Emily, you will be silent. I shall know how to interpret your remonstrances should you persevere in them. Emily raised her eyes calmly to heaven. Here is indeed then nothing to hope, said she. Peace, cried Montoni, or you shall find there is something to fear. He turned to his wife, who had now recovered her spirits, and who vehemently and wildly remonstrated upon this mysterious suspicion. But Montoni's rage heightened with her indignation, and Emily, dreading the event of it, threw herself between them and clasped his knees in silence, looking up in his face with an expression that might have softened the heart of a fiend. Whether he was hardened by a conviction of Madame Montoni's guilt, or that a bare suspicion of it made him eager to exercise vengeance, he was totally and alike insensible to the distress of his wife and to the pleading looks of Emily, whom he had made no attempt to raise, but was vehemently menacing both, when he was called out of the room by some person at the door. As she shut the door, Emily heard him turn the lock and take out the key, so that Madame Montoni and herself were now prisoners, and she saw that his designs became more and more terrible. Her endeavors to explain his motives for this circumstance were almost as ineffectual as those to soothe the distress of her aunt, whose innocence she could not doubt, but she at length accounted for Montoni's readiness to suspect his wife by his own consciousness of cruelty towards her, and for the sudden violence of his present conduct against both before even his suspicions could be completely formed by his general eagerness to effect suddenly whatever he was led to desire and his carelessness of justice or humanity in accomplishing it. Madame Montoni for some time again looked round in search of a possibility of escape from the castle and conversed with Emily on the subject, who was now willing to encounter any hazard, though she forbore to encourage a hope in her aunt, which she herself did not admit. How strongly the edifice was secured, and how vigilantly guarded, she knew too well, and trembled to commit their safety to the caprice of the servant whose assistance they must solicit. Old Carlo was compassionate, but he seemed to be too much in his master's interest to be trusted by them. Annette could of herself do little, and Emily knew Ludovico only from her report. At present, however, these considerations were useless, Madame Montoni and her niece being shut up from all intercourse, even with the persons whom there might be these reasons to reject. In the hall, confusion and tumult still reigned. Emily, as she listened anxiously to the murmur that sounded along the gallery, sometimes fancied she heard the clashing of swords, and when she considered the nature of the provocation given by Montoni and his impetuosity, it appeared probable that nothing less than arms would terminate the contention. 
Madame Montoni, having exhausted all her expressions of indignation, and Emily hers of comfort, they remained silent, in that kind of breathless stillness which, in nature, often succeeds to the uproar of the conflicting elements, a stillness like the morning that dawns upon the ruins of an earthquake. An uncertain kind of terror pervaded Emily's mind. The circumstances of the past hour still came dimly and confusedly to her memory, and her thoughts were various and rapid, though without tumult. From this state of waking visions she was recalled by a knocking at the chamber door, and inquiring who was there heard the whispering voice of Annette. Dear madame, let me come in. I have a great deal to say, said the poor girl. The door is locked, answered the lady. Yes, ma'am, but do, pray, open it. The signor has the key, said madame Montoni. Oh, blessed virgin, what will become of us? exclaimed Annette. Assist us to escape, said her mistress. Where is Ludovico? Below in the hall, ma'am, amongst them all, fighting with the best of them. Fighting? Who are fighting? cried Madame Montoni. Why, the signor, ma'am, and all the signors, and a great many more. Is any person much hurt? said Emily in a tremulous voice. Hurt? Yes, mademoiselle. There they lie bleeding, and the swords are clashing, and, oh, holy saints, do let me in, ma'am. They are coming this way. I shall be murdered. Fly, cried Emily, fly. We cannot open the door. Annette repeated that they were coming, and in the same moment fled. Be calm, madame, said Emily, turning to her aunt. I entreat you to be calm. I am not frightened, not frightened in the least. Do not you be alarmed. You can scarcely support yourself, replied her aunt. Merciful God, what is it they mean to do with us? They come, perhaps, to liberate us, said Emily. Signor Montoni, perhaps, is, is conquered. The belief of his death gave her spirits a sudden shock, and she grew faint as she saw him in imagination expiring at her feet. They are coming, cried Madame Montoni. I hear their steps. They are at the door. Emily turned her languid eyes to the door, but terror deprived her of utterance. The key sounded in the lock. The door opened, and Montoni appeared, followed by three ruffian-like men. Execute your orders, said he, turning to them and pointed to his wife who shrieked, but was immediately carried from the room, while Emily sunk, senseless on a couch by which she had endeavored to support herself. When she recovered, she was alone, and recollected only that Madame Montoni had been there, together with some unconnected particulars of the preceding transaction, which were, however, sufficient to renew all her terror. She looked wildly round the apartment, as if in search of some means of intelligence concerning her aunt, while neither her own danger or an idea of escaping from the room immediately occurred. When her recollection was more complete, she raised herself and went, but with only a faint hope, to examine whether the door was unfastened. It was so, and she then stepped timidly out into the gallery, but paused there, uncertain which way she should proceed. Her first wish was to gather some information as to her aunt, and she at length turned her steps to go to the lesser hall where Annette and the other servants usually waited. End of Volume 2, Chapter 10, Part 1 of 2 The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 2, Chapter 10, Part 2 of 2 Everywhere as she passed she heard from a distance the uproar of contention, and the figures of faces which she met hurrying along the passages struck her mind with dismay. 
Emily might now have appeared like an angel of light, encompassed by fiends. At length she reached the lesser hall, which was silent and deserted, but panting for breath she sat down to recover herself. The total stillness of this place was as awful as the tumult from which she had escaped. But she had now time to recall her scattered thoughts, to remember her personal danger, and to consider of some means of safety. She perceived that it was useless to seek Madame Montoni through the wide extent and intricacies of the castle, now, too, when every avenue seemed to be beset by ruffians. In this hall she could not resolve to stay, for she knew not how soon it might become their place of rendezvous. And though she wished to go to her chamber, she dreaded again to encounter them on the way. Thus she sat, trembling and hesitating, when a distant murmur broke on the silence, and grew louder and louder, till she distinguished voices and steps approaching. She then rose to go, but the sounds came along the only passage by which she could depart, and she was compelled to await in the hall the arrival of the persons whose steps she heard. As these advanced, she distinguished groans, and then saw a man borne slowly along by four others. Her spirits faltered at the sight, and she leaned against the wall for support. The bearers, meanwhile, entered the hall, and being too busily occupied to detain or even notice Emily, she attempted to leave it, but her strength failed, and she again sat down on the bench. A damp chilliness came over her. Her sight became confused. She knew not what had passed or where she was, yet the groans of the wounded person still vibrated on her heart. In a few moments, the tide of life seemed again to flow. She began to breathe more freely, and her senses revived. She had not fainted, nor had ever totally lost her consciousness, but had contrived to support herself on the bench still without courage to turn her eyes upon the unfortunate object which remained near her, and about whom the men were yet too much engaged to attend to her. When her strength returned, she rose, and was suffered to leave the hall, though her anxiety, having produced some vain inquiries concerning Madame Montoni, had thus made a discovery of herself. Towards her chamber she now hastened, as fast as her steps would bear her, for she still perceived upon her passage the sounds of confusion at a distance, and she endeavored, by taking her way through some obscure rooms, to avoid encountering the persons whose looks had terrified her before, as well as those parts of the castle where the tumult might still rage. At length she reached her chamber, and having secured the door of the corridor, felt herself for a moment in safety. A profound stillness reigned in this remote apartment, which not even the faint murmur of the most distant sounds now reached. She sat down, near one of the casements, and as she gazed on the mountain view beyond, a deep repose of its beauty struck her with all the force of contrast, and she could scarcely believe herself so near a scene of savage discord. The contending elements seemed to have retired from their natural spheres, and to have collected themselves into the minds of men, for there alone the tempest now reigned. Emily tried to tranquilize her spirits, but anxiety made her constantly listen for some sound, and often look out upon the ramparts, where all, however, was lonely and still. 
As a sense of her own immediate danger had decreased, her apprehension concerning Madame Montoni heightened, who, she remembered, had been fiercely threatened with confinement in the East Turret, and it was possible that her husband had satisfied his present vengeance with this punishment. She therefore determined, when night should return and the inhabitants of the castle should be asleep, to explore the way to the turret, which, as a direction it stood in was mentioned, appeared not very difficult to be done. She knew, indeed, that although her aunt might be there, she could afford her no effectual assistance, but it might give her some comfort even to know that she was discovered, and to hear the sound of her niece's voice, for herself, any certainty concerning Madame Montoni's fate appeared more tolerable than this exhausting suspense. Meanwhile, Annette did not appear, and Emily was surprised and somewhat alarmed for her, whom, in the confusion of the late scene, various accidents might have befallen, and it was improbable that she would have failed to come to her apartment unless something unfortunate had happened. Thus the hours passed in solitude, in silence, and in anxious conjecturing. Being not once disturbed by a message, or a sound, it appeared that Montoni had wholly forgotten her, and it gave her some comfort to find that she could be so unnoticed. She endeavored to withdraw her thoughts from the anxiety that preyed upon them, but they refused control. She could neither read or draw, and the tones of her lute were so utterly discordant with the present state of her feelings that she could not endure them for a moment. The sun at length set behind the western mountains. His fiery beams faded from the clouds, and then a dun melancholy purple drew over them and gradually involved the features of the country below. Soon after, the sentinels passed on the rampart to commence the watch. Twilight had now spread its gloom over every object. The dismal obscurity of her chamber recalled fearful thoughts, but she remembered that to procure a light she must pass through a great extent of the castle, and above all through the halls where she had already experienced so much horror. Darkness, indeed, in the present state of her spirits, made silence and solitude terrible to her. It would also prevent the possibility of her finding her way to the turret, and condemn her to remain in suspense concerning the fate of her aunt. Yet she dared not venture forth for a lamp. Continuing at the casement, that she might catch the last lingering gleam of evening, a thousand vague images of fear floated on her fancy. What if some of these ruffians, said she, should find out the private staircase, and in the darkness of night steal into my chamber? Then, recollecting the mysterious inhabitant of the neighboring apartment, her terror changed its object. He is not a prisoner, said she, though he remains in one chamber, for Montoni did not fasten the door when he left it. The unknown person himself did this. It is certain, therefore, he can come out when he pleases. She paused, for notwithstanding the terrors of darkness, she considered it very improbable, whoever he was, that he could have any interest in intruding upon her retirement. And again the subject of her emotion changed when, remembering her nearness to the chamber, where the veil had formerly disclosed a dreadful spectacle, she doubted whether some passage might not communicate between it and the insecure door of the staircase. 
It was now entirely dark, and she left the casement. As she sat with her eyes fixed on the hearth, she thought she perceived there a spark of light. It twinkled and disappeared, and then again was visible. At length, with much care, she fanned the embers of a wood fire that had been lighted in the morning into flame, and having communicated it to a lamp, which always stood in her room, felt a satisfaction not to be conceived without a review of her situation. Her first care was to guard the door of the staircase, for which purpose she placed against it all the furniture she could move, and she was thus employed for some time, at the end of which she had another instance how much more oppressive misfortune is to the idle than to the busy. For having then leisure to think over all the circumstances of her present afflictions, she imagined a thousand evils for futurity, and these real and ideal subjects of distress alike wounded her mind. Thus heavily moved the hours till midnight, when she counted the sullen notes of the great clock as they rolled along the rampart, unmingled with any sound except the distant footfall of a sentinel who came to relieve guard. She now thought she might venture toward the turret, and having gently opened the chamber door to examine the corridor, and to listen if any person was stirring in the castle, found all around in perfect stillness. Yet no sooner had she left the room than she perceived a light flash on the walls of the corridor, and without waiting to see by whom it was carried, she shrunk back and closed her door. No one approaching, she conjectured that it was Montoni going to pay his midnight visit to her unknown neighbor, and she determined to wait till he should have retired to his own apartment. When the chimes had told another half hour, she once more opened the door, and perceiving that no person was in the corridor, hastily crossed into a passage that led along the south side of the castle towards the staircase, whence she believed she could easily find her way to the turret. Often pausing on her way, listening apprehensively to the murmurs of the wind, and looking fearfully onward into the gloom of the long passages, she at length reached the staircase. But there her perplexity began. Two passages appeared, of which she knew not how to prefer one, and was compelled at last to decide by chance, rather than by circumstances. That she entered, opened first into a wide gallery, along which she passed lightly and swiftly, for the lonely aspect of the place awed her, and she started at the echo of her own steps. On a sudden, she thought she heard a voice, and not distinguishing from whence it came, feared equally to proceed or to return. For some moments she stood in an attitude of listening expectation, shrinking almost from herself and scarcely daring to look round her. The voice came again, but though it was now near her, terror did not allow her to judge exactly whence it proceeded. She thought, however, that it was the voice of complaint, and her belief was soon confirmed by a low moaning sound that seemed to proceed from one of the chambers opening into the gallery. It instantly occurred to her that Madame Montoni might be there confined, and she advanced to the door to speak, but was checked by considering that she was, perhaps, going to commit herself to a stranger who might discover her to Montoni. For though this person, whoever it was, seemed to be in affliction, it did not follow that he was a prisoner. 
While these thoughts passed over her mind and left her still in hesitation, the voice spoke again, and calling Ludovico, she then perceived it to be that of Annette, on which, no longer hesitating, she went in joy to answer her. Ludovico, cried Annette, sobbing, Ludovico. It is not Ludovico, it is I, Mademoiselle Emily. Annette ceased sobbing and was silent. If you can open the door, let me in, said Emily. Here is no person to hurt you. Ludovico, oh, Ludovico, cried Annette. Emily now lost her patience, and her fear of being overheard increasing. She was even nearly about to leave the door, when she considered that Annette might possibly know something of the situation of Madame Montoni, or direct her to the turret. At length she replained of reply, though little satisfactory, to her questions, for Annette knew nothing of Madame Montoni, and only conjured Emily to tell her what was become of Ludovico. Of him she had no information to give, and she again asked who had shut Annette up. Ludovico, said the poor girl, Ludovico shut me up. When I ran away from the dressing room door today, I went I scarcely knew where for safety, and in this gallery here I met Ludovico, who hurried me into this chamber, and locked me up to keep me out of harm, as he said. But he was in such a hurry himself, he hardly spoke ten words, but he told me he would come and let me out, when all was quiet, and he took away the keys with him. Now all these hours are past, and I have neither seen or heard a word of him. They have murdered him, I know they have. Emily suddenly remembered the wounded person whom she had seen borne into the servants' hall, and she scarcely doubted that he was Ludovico, but she concealed the circumstance from Annette, and endeavored to comfort her. Then, impatient to learn something of her aunt, she again inquired the way to the turret. Oh, you are not going, Mademoiselle, said Annette. For heaven's sake, do not go and leave me here by myself. Nay, Annette, you do not think I can wait in the gallery all night, replied Emily. Direct me to the turret. In the morning I will endeavor to release you. Oh, holy Mary, exclaimed Annette. Am I to stay here by myself all night? I shall be frightened out of my senses, and I shall die of hunger. I have had nothing to eat since dinner. Emily could scarcely forbear smiling at the heterogeneous distresses of Annette, though she sincerely pitied them, and said what she could to soothe her. At length she obtained something like a direction to the east turret, and quitted the door, from whence, after many intricacies and perplexities, she reached the steep and winding stairs of the turret, at the foot of which she stopped to rest, and to reanimate her courage with the sense of her duty. As she surveyed the dismal place, she perceived a door on the opposite side of the staircase, and anxious to know whether it would lead her to Madame Montoni, she tried to undraw the bolts which fastened it. A fresher air came to her face as she unclosed the door which opened upon the east rampart, and the sudden current had nearly extinguished her light, which she now removed to a distance. And again, looking out upon the obscure terrace, she perceived only the faint outline of the walls and of some towers, while above, heavy clouds, borne along the wind, seemed to mingle with the stairs and wrap the night in thicker darkness. As she gazed, now willing to defer the moment of certainty from which she expected only confirmation of evil, a distant footstep reminded her that she might be observed by the men on watch and hastily closing the door, she took her lamp and passed up the staircase. 
trembling came upon her as she ascended through the gloom. To her melancholy fancy, this seemed to be a place of death, and the chilling silence that reigned confirmed its character. Her spirits faltered. Perhaps, said she, I am come hither only to learn a dreadful truth, or to witness some horrible spectacle. I feel that my senses would not survive an addition of horror. The image of her aunt murdered, murdered perhaps by the hand of Montoni, rose to her mind. She trembled, grasped for breath, repented that she had dared to venture hither, and checked her steps. But after she had paused a few minutes, the consciousness of her duty returned, and she went on. Still all was silent. At length the track of blood upon a stair caught her eye, and instantly she perceived that the wall and several other steps were stained. She paused, again struggled to support herself, and the lamp almost fell from her trembling hand. Still no sound was heard. No living being seemed to inhabit the turret. A thousand times she wished herself again in her chamber, dreaded to inquire further, dreaded to encounter some horrible spectacle, and yet could not resolve, now that she was so near the termination of her efforts, to desist from them. Having again collected courage to proceed, after ascending about halfway up the turret, she came to another door, but here again she stopped in hesitation, listened for sounds within, and then summoning all her resolution, unclosed it, and entered a chamber which, as her lamp shot its feeble rays through the darkness, seemed to exhibit only dew-stained and deserted walls. As she stood examining it, in fearful expectation of discovering the remains of her unfortunate aunt, she perceived something lying in an obscure corner of the room, and struck with an horrible conviction, she became, for an instant, motionless and nearly insensible. Then, with a kind of desperate resolution, she hurried towards the object that excited her terror, when, perceiving the clothes of some person on the floor, she caught hold of them, and found in her grasp the old uniform of a soldier beneath which appeared a heap of pikes and other arms. Scarcely daring to trust her sight, she continued for some moments to gaze on the object of her late alarm, and then left the chamber, so much comforted and occupied by the conviction that her aunt was not there, that she was going to descend the turret without inquiring further, when, on turning to do so, she observed upon some steps of the second flight an appearance of blood, and remembering that there were yet another chamber to be explored, she again followed the windings of the ascent. Still, as she ascended, the track of blood glared upon the stairs. It led her to the door of a landing place that terminated them, but she was unable to follow it further. Now that she was so near the sought-for certainty, she dreaded to know it even more than before, and had not fortitude sufficient to speak or to attempt opening the door. Having listened in vain for some sound that might confirm or destroy her fears, she at length laid her hand on the lock, and finding it fastened, called on Madame Montoni, but only a chilling silence ensued. She is dead, she cried, murdered, her blood is on the stairs. Emily grew very faint, could support herself no longer, and had scarcely presence of mind to set down the lamp and place herself on a step. When her recollection returned, she spoke again at the door, and again attempted to open it, 
and having lingered for some time without receiving any answer or hearing any sound, she descended the torrent, and with all the swiftness her feebleness would permit, sought her own apartment. As she turned into the corridor, the door of a chamber opened, from whence Montoni came forth, but Emily, more terrified than ever to behold him, shrunk back into the passage soon enough to escape being noticed, and heard him close the door, which she had perceived was the same she formerly observed. Having here listened to his departing steps, till their faint sound was lost in distance, she ventured to her apartment, and securing it once again, retired to her bed, leaving the lamp burning on the hearth. But sleep was fled from her harassed mind, to which images of horror alone occurred. She endeavored to think it possible that Madame Montoni had not been taken to the turret, but when she recollected the former menaces of her husband, and the terrible spirit of vengeance which he had displayed on a late occasion, when she remembered his general character, the looks of the men who had forced Madame Montoni from her apartment, and the written traces on the stairs of the turret, she could not doubt that her aunt had been carried thither, and could scarcely hope that she had not been carried to be murdered. The gray of morning had long dawned through her casements before Emily closed her eyes in sleep, when wearied nature, at length, yielded her a respite from suffering. End of Volume 2, Chapter 10, Part 2 of 2 The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 2, Chapter 11 Who Rears the Bloody Hand? Sayers Emily remained in her chamber on the following morning without receiving any notice from Montoni or seeing a human being except the armed men who sometimes passed on the terrace below. Having tasted no food since the dinner of the preceding day, extreme faintness made her feel the necessity of quitting the asylum of her apartment to obtain refreshment, and she was also very anxious to procure liberty for Annette. Willing, however, to deter venturing forth as long as possible, and considering whether she should apply to Montoni or to the compassion of some other person, her excessive anxiety concerning her aunt at length overcame her abhorrence of his presence, and she determined to go to him and to entreat that he would suffer her to see Madame Montoni. Meanwhile, it was too certain from the absence of Annette that some accident had befallen Ludovico, and that she was still in confinement. Emily therefore resolved also to visit the chamber where she had spoken to her on the preceding night, and if the poor girl was yet there, to inform Montoni of her situation. It was near noon before she ventured from her apartment, and went first to the south gallery, whither she passed without meeting a single person or hearing a sound, except, now and then, the echo of a distant footstep. It was unnecessary to call Annette, whose lamentations were audible upon the first approach to the gallery, and who, bewailing her own and Ludovico's fate, told Emily that she should certainly be starved to death if she was not let out immediately. Emily replied that she was going to beg her release of Montoni, but the terrors of hunger now yielded to those of the Signor, and when Emily left her she was loudly entreating that her place of refuge might be concealed from him. As Emily drew near the great hall, the sounds she heard and the people she met in the passages renewed her alarm. The latter, however, were peaceable, and did not interrupt her, 
though they looked earnestly at her as she passed and sometimes spoke. On crossing the hall towards the cedar room where Montoni usually sat, she perceived on the pavement fragments of swords, some tattered garments stained with blood, and almost expected to have seen among them a dead body, but from such a spectacle she was at present spared. As she approached the room, the sound of several voices issued from within, and a dread of appearing before many strangers, as well as of irritating Montoni by such an intrusion, made her pause and falter from her purpose. She looked up through the long arcades of the hall in search of a servant who might bear a message, but no one appeared, and the urgency of what she had to request made her still linger near the door. The voices within were not in contention, though she distinguished those of several of the guests of the preceding day, but still her resolution failed whenever she would have tapped at the door, and she had determined to walk in the hall till some person should appear who might call Montoni from the room, when as she turned from the door, it was suddenly opened by himself. Emily trembled and was confused when he almost started with surprise, and all the terrors of his countenance unfolded themselves. She forgot all she would have said, and neither inquired for her aunt or entreated for Annette, but stood silent and embarrassed. After closing the door, he reproved her for a meanness of which she had not been guilty, and sternly questioned her what she had overheard, an accusation which revived her recollection so far that she assured him she had not come thither with an intention to listen to his conversation, but to entreat his compassion for her aunt and for Annette. Montoni seemed to doubt this assertion, for he regarded her with a scrutinizing look, and the doubt evidently arose from no trifling interest. Emily then further explained herself, and concluded with entreating him to inform her where her aunt was placed, and to permit that she might visit her. But he looked upon her only with a malignant smile, which instantly confirmed her worst fears for her aunt, and at that moment she had not the courage to renew her entreaties. For Annette, said he, if you go to Carlo, he will release the girl. The foolish fellow who shut her up died yesterday. Emily shuddered. But my aunt, Signor, said she. Oh, tell me of my aunt. She is taken care of, replied Tony hastily. I have no time to answer idle questions. He would have passed on, but Emily, in a voice of agony that could not be wholly resisted, conjured him to tell her where Madame Montoni was. While he paused, and she anxiously watched his countenance, a trumpet sounded, and in the next moment she heard the heavy gates of the portal open, and then the clattering of horses' hoofs in the court, with the confusion of many voices. She stood for a moment hesitating whether she should follow Montoni, who, at the sound of the trumpet, had passed through the hall, and turned her eyes whence it came. She saw through the door that opened beyond a long perspective of arches into the courts a party of horsemen whom she judged, as well as a distance and her embarrassment would allow, to be the same she had seen depart a few days before. But she stayed not to scrutinize, for, when the trumpet sounded again, the chevaliers rushed out of the cedar room and men came running into the hall from every quarter of the castle. Emily once more hurried for shelter to her own apartment. Thither she was still pursued by images of horror. She reconsidered Montoni's manners and words, 
when he had spoken of his wife, and they served only to confirm her most terrible suspicions. Tears refused any longer to relieve her distress, and she sat for a considerable time absorbed in thought when a knocking at the chamber door aroused her, on opening which she found old Carlo. Dear young lady, said he, I have been so flurried, I never once thought of you till just now. I have brought you some fruit and wine, and I am sure you must stand in need of them by this time. Thank you, Carlo, said Emily. This is very good of you. Did the signor remind you of me? No, signora, replied Carlo. His Excellenza has business enough on his hands. Emily then renewed her inquiries concerning Madame Montoni, but Carlo had been employed at the other end of the castle during the time that she was removed, and he had heard nothing since concerning her. While he spoke, Emily looked steadily at him, for she scarcely knew whether he was really ignorant or concealed his knowledge of the truth from a fear of offending his master. To several questions concerning the contentions of yesterday he gave very limited answers, but told that the disputes were now amicably settled, and that the signor believed himself to have been mistaken in his suspicions of his guests. The fighting was about that, signora, said Carlo but I trust I shall never see such another day in this castle, though strange things are about to be done. On her inquiring his meaning, Ah, signora, added he, it is not for me to betray secrets, or tell all I think, but time will tell. She then desired him to release Annette, and having described the chamber in which the poor girl was confined, he promised to obey her immediately, and was departing when she remembered to ask, who were the persons just arrived? Her late conjecture was right. It was Verazzi with his party. Her spirits were somewhat soothed by this short conversation with Carlo, for in her present circumstances it afforded some comfort to hear the accents of compassion and to meet the look of sympathy. An hour passed before Annette appeared, who then came weeping and sobbing, Oh, Ludovico, Ludovico, cried she. My poor Annette, said Emily, and made her sit down. Who could have foreseen this, mademoiselle? Oh, miserable, wretched day, that ever I should live to see it. And she continued to moan and lament till Emily thought it was necessary to check her excess of grief. We are continually losing dear friends by death, said she, with a sigh that came from her heart. We must submit to the will of heaven. Our tears, alas, cannot recall the dead. Annette took the handkerchief from her face. You will meet Ludovico in a better world, I hope, added Emily. Yes, yes, mademoiselle, sobbed Annette, but I hope I shall meet him again in this, though he is so wounded. Wounded, exclaimed Emily. Does he live? Yes, ma'am, but, but he has a terrible wound and could not come to let me out. They thought him dead at first, and he has not been rightly himself till within this hour. Well, Annette, I rejoice to hear he lives. Lives? Holy saints! Why, he will not die, surely. Emily said she hoped not, but this expression of hope Annette thought implied fear, and her own increased in proportion as Emily endeavored to encourage her. To inquiries concerning Madame Montoni, she could give no satisfactory answers. I quite forgot to ask among the servants, mademoiselle, said she, for I could think of nobody but poor Ludovico. Annette's grief was now somewhat assaged, and Emily sent her to make inquiries concerning her lady, of whom, however, she could obtain no intelligence, 
some of the people she spoke with being really ignorant of her fate, and others having probably received orders to conceal it. The day passed with Emily in continued grief and anxiety for her aunt, but she was unmolested by any notice from Montoni. And now that Annette was liberated, she obtained food without exposing herself to danger or impertinence. Two following days passed in the same manner, unmarked by any occurrence, during which she obtained no information of Madame Montoni. On the evening of the second, having dismissed Annette and retired to bed, her mind became haunted by the most dismal images, such as her long anxiety concerning her aunt suggested and unable to forget herself for a moment, or to vanquish the phantoms that tormented her, she rose from her bed and went to one of the casements of her chamber to breathe a freer air. All without was silent and dark, unless that could be called light, which was only the faint glimmer of the stars showing imperfectly the outline of the mountains. The western towers of the castle and the ramparts below where a solitary sentinel was pacing. What an image of repose did this scene present. The fierce and terrible passions, too, which so often agitated the inhabitants of this edifice, seemed now hushed and sleep. Those mysterious workings that roused the elements of man's nature into tempest were calm. Emily's heart was not so, but her sufferings, though deep, partook of the gentle character of her mind. Hers was a silent anguish, weeping yet enduring, not the wild energy of passion inflaming imagination, bearing down the barriers of reason and living in a world of its own. The air refreshed her, and she continued at the casement, looking on the shadowy scene over which the planets burned with a clear light amid the deep blue ether as they silently moved in their destined course. She remembered how often she had gazed on them with her dear father, how often he had pointed out their way in the heavens and explained their laws. And these reflections led to others which in an almost equal degree awakened her grief and astonishment. They brought a retrospect of all the strange and mournful events which had occurred since she lived in peace with her parents. And to Emily, who had been so tenderly educated, so tenderly loved, who once knew only goodness and happiness, to her the late events and her present situation in a foreign land, in a remote castle, surrounded by vice and violence, seemed more like the visions of a distempered imagination than the circumstances of truth. She wept to think of what her parents would have suffered could they have foreseen the events of her future life. While she raised her streaming eyes to heaven, she observed the same planet which she had seen in Languedoc on the night preceding her father's death rise above the eastern towers of the castle, while she remembered the conversation which has passed concerning the probable state of departed souls, remembered also the solemn music she had heard, and to which the tenderness of her spirits had, in spite of her reason, given a superstitious meaning. At these recollections she wept again, and continued musing, when suddenly the notes of sweet music passed on the air. A superstitious dread stole over her. She stood listening for some moments in trembling expectation and then endeavored to recollect her thoughts and to reason herself into composure. But human reason cannot establish her laws on subjects lost in the obscurity of imagination. 
any more than the eye can ascertain the form of objects that only glimmer through the dimness of night. Her surprise on hearing such soothing and delicious sounds was at least justifiable, for it was long, very long, since she had listened to anything like melody. The fierce trumpet and the shrill fife were the only instruments she had heard since her arrival at Udolfo. When her mind was somewhat more composed, she tried to ascertain from what quarter the sounds proceeded, and thought they came from below, but whether from a room of the castle or from the terrace, she could not with certainty judge. Fear and surprise now yielded to the enchantment of a strain that floated on the silent night with the most soft and melancholy sweetness. Suddenly it seemed removed to a distance, trembled faintly, and then entirely ceased. She continued to listen, sunk in that pleasing repose which soft music leads on the mind, but it came no more. Upon this strange circumstance her thoughts were long engaged, for strange it certainly was to hear music at midnight, when every inhabitant of the castle had long since retired to rest, and in a place where nothing like harmony had been heard before probably for many years. Long suffering had made her spirits peculiarly sensible to terror, and liable to be affected by the illusions of superstition. It now seemed to her as if her dead father had spoken to her in that strain, to inspire her with comfort and confidence on the subject which had then occupied her mind. Yet reason told her that this was a wild conjecture, and she was inclined to dismiss it, but with the inconsistency so natural when imagination guides the thoughts, she then wavered towards a belief as wild. She remembered the singular event connected with the castle, which had given it into the possession of its present owner. And when she considered the mysterious manner in which its late possessor had disappeared, and that she had never since been heard of, her mind was impressed with a high degree of solemn awe, so that, though there appeared no clue to connect that event with the late music, she was inclined fancifully to think they had some relation to each other. At this conjecture, a sudden chillness ran through her frame. She looked fearfully upon the duskiness of her chamber, and the dead silence that prevailed there heightened to her fancy its gloomy aspect. At length she left the casement, but her steps faltered as she approached the bed, and she stopped and looked round. The single lamp that burned in her spacious chamber was expiring. For a moment she shrunk from the darkness beyond, then ashamed of the weakness which, however, she could not wholly conquer, went forward to the bed, where her mind did not soon know the soothings of sleep. She still mused on the late occurrence and looked with anxiety to the next night, when at the same hour she determined to watch whether the music returned. If those sounds were human, said she, I shall probably hear them again. End of chapter 11 The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 2, Chapter 12 then, oh, you blessed ministers above, keep me in patience and in ripened time. Unfold the evil which is here wrapped up in countenance. Shakespeare Annette came almost breathless to Emily's apartment in the morning. 
Oh, ma'amselle, said she in broken sentences, what news I have to tell? I have found out who the prisoner is, but he was no prisoner, neither. He that was shut up in the chamber I told you of. I must think him a ghost, forsooth. Who was the prisoner? inquired Emily, while her thoughts glanced back to the circumstance of the preceding night. You mistake, ma'am, said Annette. He was not a prisoner after all. Who is the person then? Holy saints, rejoined Annette. How I was surprised. I met him just now on the rampart below there. I never was so surprised in my life. Ah, ma'amselle, this is a strange place. I should never have done wandering if I was to live here an hundred years. But as I was saying, I met him just now on the rampart, and I was thinking of nobody less than of him. This trifling is insupportable, said Emily. Pry thee, Annette, do not torture my patience any longer. Nay, ma'amselle, guess, guess who it was. It was somebody you know very well. I cannot guess, said Emily impatiently. Nay, ma'amselle, I'll tell you something to guess by. A tall seigneur with a longish face, who walks so stately, and used to wear such a high feather in his hat, and used often to look down upon the ground, when people spoke to him, and to look at people from under his eyebrows, as it were, all so dark and frowning. You have seen him, often and often at Venice, ma'am. Then he was so intimate with the seigneur too. And, now I think of it, I wonder what he could be afraid of in this lonely old castle that he should shut himself up for. But he is come abroad now, for I met him on the rampart just this minute. I trembled when I saw him, for I always was afraid of him somehow. But I determined I would not let him see it, so I went up to him and made him a low curtsy. You are welcome to the castle, Signor Orsino, said I. Oh, it was Signor Orsino then, said Emily. Yes, ma'amselle, Signor Orsino himself, who caused that Venetian gentleman to be killed, and has been popping about from place to place ever since, as I hear. Good God, exclaimed Emily, recovering from the shock of this intelligence, and is he come to Udolfo? He does well to endeavor to conceal himself. Yes, ma'amselle, but if that was all, this desolate place would conceal him without his shutting himself up in one room. Who would think of coming to look for him here? I'm sure I should as soon think of going to look for anybody in the other world. There is some truth in that, said Emily, who would now have concluded it was Orsino's music which she had heard on the preceding night, had she not known that he had neither taste or skill in the art. But, though she was unwilling to add to the number of Annette's surprises by mentioning the subject of her own, she inquired whether any person in the castle played on a musical instrument. Oh, yes, ma'amselle. There is Benedetto plays the great drum to admiration, and then there is Launcelot, the trumpeter. Nay, for that matter, Ludovico himself can play on the trumpet, but he is ill now. I remember once, Emily interrupted her. Have you heard no other music since you came to the castle? None last night? Why, did you hear any last night, mademoiselle? 
Emily evaded this question by repeating her own. Why, no man, replied Annette. I never heard any music here, I must say, but the drums and the trumpet, and so far last night I did nothing but dream I saw my late lady's ghost. Your late ladies, said Emily in a tremulous voice. You have heard more then. Tell me, tell me all, Annette. I entreat, tell me the worst at once. Nay, mademoiselle, you know the worst already? I know nothing, said Emily. Yes, you do, mademoiselle. You know that nobody knows anything about her, and it is plain, therefore, she is gone, the way of the first lady of the castle. Nobody ever knew anything about her. Emily leaned her head upon her hand and was for some time silent. Then, telling Annette she wished to be alone, the latter left the room. The remark of Annette had revived Emily's terrible suspicion concerning the fate of Madame Montoni, and she resolved to make another effort to obtain certainty on this subject by applying to Montoni once more. When Annette returned a few hours after, she told Emily that the porter of the castle wished very much to speak with her, for that he had something of importance to say. Her spirits had, however, of late been so subject to alarm that any new circumstance excited it, and this message from the porter, when her first surprise was over, made her look round for some lurking danger. The more suspiciously, perhaps, because she had frequently remarked the unpleasant air and countenance of this man. She now hesitated, whether to speak with him, doubting even that this request was only a pretext to draw her into some danger. But a little reflection showed her the improbability of this, and she blushed at her weak fears. I'll speak to him, Annette, said she. Desired him to come to the corridor immediately. Annette departed and soon after returned. Barnardine, mademoiselle, said she, dare not come to the corridor, lest he should be discovered. It is so far from his post, and he dare not even leave the gates for a moment now. But if you will come to him at the portal, through some roundabout passages he told me of, without crossing the courts, he has that to tell which will surprise you. But you must not come through the courts, lest the signor should see you. Emily, neither approving these roundabout passage, nor the other part of the request, now positively refused to go. Tell him, said she, if he has anything of consequence to impart, I'll hear him in the corridor, whenever he has an opportunity of coming thither. Annette went to deliver this message, and was absent a considerable time. When she returned, it won't do, mademoiselle, said she. Bernardine has been considering all this time what can be done, for it is as much as his place is worth to leave his post now. But if you will come to the east rampart in the dusk of the evening, he can perhaps steal away and tell you all he has to say. Emily was surprised and alarmed at the secrecy which this man seemed to think so necessary and hesitated whether to meet him. Still considering that he might mean to warn her of some serious danger, she resolved to go. Soon after sunset, said she, I'll be at the end of the east rampart, but then the watch will be set, she added recollecting herself, and how can Bernardine pass unobserved? 
This is just what I said to him, ma'am, and he answered me that he had the key of the gate at the end of the rampart that leads towards the courts and could let himself through that way. And as for the sentinels, there were none at this end of the terrace because the place is guarded enough by the high walls of the castle and the east turret. And he said those at the other end were too far off to see him if it was pretty duskish. Well, said Emily, I must hear what he has to tell and therefore desire you will go with me to the terrace this evening. He desired it might be pretty duskish, mademoiselle, repeated Annette, because of the watch. Emily paused and then said she would be on the terrace an hour after sunset and tell Bernardine, she added, to be punctual to the time, for that I also may be observed by Signor Montoni. Where is the Signor? I would speak with him. He is in the Sadat chamber, ma'am, counselling with the other Signors. He is going to give them a sort of treat today, to make up for what passed at the last, I suppose. The people are all very busy in the kitchen. Emily now inquired if Montoni expected any new guests, and Annette believed that he did not. Poor Ludovico, added she. He would be as merry as the best of them if he was well, but he may recover yet. Count Murano was wounded as bad as he, and he has got well again, and is gone back to Venice. Is he so? said Emily. When did you hear this? I heard it last night, mademoiselle, but I forgot to tell it. Emily asked some further questions, and then, desiring Annette would observe and inform her when Montoni was alone, the girl went on to deliver her message to Bernardine. Montoni was, however, so much engaged during the whole day that Emily had no opportunity of seeking a release from her terrible suspense concerning her aunt. Annette was employed in watching his steps and in attending upon Ludovico, whom she, assisted by Caterina, nursed with the utmost care, and Emily was, of course, left much alone. Her thoughts dwelt upon on the message of the porter, and were employed in conjecturing the subject that occasioned it, which she sometimes imagined concerned the fate of Madame Montoni, at others that is related to some personal danger which threatened herself. The cautious secrecy which Bernardine observed in his conduct inclined her to believe the latter. As the hour of appointment drew near, her impatience increased. At length the sun set. She heard the passing steps of the sentinels going to their posts, and waited only for Annette to accompany her to the terrace, who soon after came, and they descended together. When Emily expressed apprehensions of meeting Montoni or some of his guests, Oh, there's no fear of that, mademoiselle, said Annette. They are all set in to feasting yet, and that Bernardine knows. They reached the first terrace where the sentinels demanded who passed, and Emily, having answered, walked on to the east rampart, at the entrance of which they were again stopped, and having again replied, were permitted to proceed. But Emily did not like to expose herself to the discretion of these men. At such an hour, and impatient to withdraw from the situation, she stepped hastily on in search of Bernardine. He was not yet come. She leaned pensively on the wall of the rampart, and waited for him. The 
gloom of twilight sat deep on the surrounding objects, blending in soft confusion the valley, the mountains and the woods, whose tall heads, stirred by the evening breeze, gave the only sounds that stole on silence except a faint, faint chorus of distant voices that arose from within the castle. What voices are those? said Emily as she fearfully listened. "'Tis only the Signor and his guests carousing,' replied Annette. "'Good God,' thought Emily, "'can this man's heart be so gay when he has made another being so wretched? "'If indeed my aunt is yet suffered to feel her wretchedness? "'Oh, whatever are my own sufferings, "'may my heart never, never be hardened against those of others.' "'She looked up with a sensation of horror to the east turret.' near which she then stood. A light glimmered through the grates of the lower chamber, but those of the upper one were dark. Presently she perceived a person moving with a lamp across the lower room, but this circumstance revived no hope concerning Madame Montoni, whom she had vainly sought in that apartment, which had appeared to contain only soldiers' accoutrements. Emily, however, determined to attempt the outer door of the turret, as soon as Bernardine should withdraw, and if it was unfastened, to make another effort to discover her aunt. The moments passed, but still Bernardine did not appear, and Emily, becoming uneasy, hesitated whether to wait any longer. She would have sent Annette to the portal to hasten him, but feared to be left alone, for it was now almost dark, and a melancholy streak of red that still lingered in the west was the only vestige of departed day. The strong interest, however, which Bernardine's message had awakened overcame other apprehensions and still detained her. While she was conjecturing with Annette what could thus occasion his absence, they heard a key turn in the lock of the gate near them, and presently saw a man advancing. It was Bernardine, of whom Emily hastily inquired what he had to communicate and desired that he would tell her quickly. For I am chilled with this evening air, said she. You must dismiss your maid, lady, said the man in a voice, the deep tone of which shocked her. What I have to tell is to you only. Emily, after some hesitation, desired Annette to withdraw to a little distance. Now, my friend, what would you say? He was silent a moment, as if considering, and then said, That which would cost me my place at least, if it came to the Signor's ears. You must promise, lady, that nothing shall ever make you tell a syllable of the matter. I have been trusted in this affair, and if it was known that I betrayed my trust, my life, perhaps, might answer it. But I was concerned for you, lady, and I resolved to tell you. He paused. Emily thanked him, assured him that he might repose on her discretion, and entreated him to dispatch. Annette told us in the hall how unhappy you was about Signora Montoni, and how much you wished to know what was become of her. Most true, said Emily eagerly, and you can inform me? I conjure you, tell me the worst, without hesitation. She rested her trembling arm upon the wall. I can tell you, said Bernardine, and paused. Emily had no power to enforce her entreaties. I can tell you, resumed Bernardine, but... 
"But what?" exclaimed Emily, recovering her resolution. "Here I am, ma'amselle," said Annette, who, having heard the eager tone in which Emily pronounced these words, came running towards her. "Retire," said Barnardine, sternly, "you are not wanted;" and, as Emily said nothing, Annette obeyed. "I can tell you," repeated the porter, "but I know not how. You was afflicted before." "I am prepared for the worst, my friend," said Emily, in a firm and solemn voice. "I can support any certainty better than this suspense." "Well, Signora, if that is the case, you shall hear. You know, I suppose, that the Signor and his lady used sometimes to disagree. It is none of my concerns to inquire what it was about, but I believe you know it was so." "Well," said Emily, "proceed." The Signor, it seems, had lately been very much wrapped against her. I saw all, and heard all, a great deal more than people thought for. But it was none of my business, so I said nothing. A few days ago, the Signor sent for me. Bernardine, says he, you are an honest man. I think I can trust you. I assured his excellency that he could. Then, says he, as near as I can remember, I have an affair in hand, which I want you to assist me in. Then he told me what I was to do, but that I shall say nothing about. It concerned only the Signora. Oh, heavens! exclaimed Emily. What have you done? Bernardine hesitated and was silent. What fiend could tempt him or you to such an act? cried Emily, chilled with horror, and scarcely able to support her fainting spirits. It was a fiend, said Bernardine in a gloomy tone of voice. They were now both silent. Emily had not courage to inquire further, and Bernardine seemed to shrink from telling more. At length he said, It is of no use to think of the past. The Signor was cruel enough, but he would be obeyed. What signified my refusing? He would have found others who had no scruples. You have murdered her then, said Emily in a hollow and inward voice. I am talking with a murderer. Bernardine stood silent while Emily turned from him and attempted to leave the place. Stay, lady, said he. You deserve to think so still, since you can believe me capable of such a deed. If you are innocent, tell me quickly, said Emily, in faint accents, for I feel I shall not be able to hear you long. I will tell you no more, said he, and walked away. Emily had just strength enough to bid him stay, and then to call Annette, on whose arm she leaned, and they walked slowly up the rampart, till they heard steps behind them. It was Bernardine again. Send away the girl, said he, and I'll tell you more. She must not go, said Emily. What you have to say, she may hear. May she so, lady, said he. You shall know no more then, and he was going though slowly when Emily's anxiety, overcoming the resentment and fear which the man's behavior had roused, she desired him to stay and bade Annette retire. The Signora is alive, said he, for me. She is my prisoner, though. His Excellency has shut her up in the chamber over the great gates of the court, and I have the charge of her. I was going to have told you you might see her, but now... 
Emily, relieved from an unutterable load of anguish by this speech, had now only to ask Bernardine's forgiveness and to conjure that he would let her visit her aunt. He complied with less reluctance than she expected, and told her that if she would repair on the following night, when the signor was retired to rest to the postern gate of the castle, she should perhaps see Madame Montoni. Amid all the thankfulness which Emily felt for this concession, she thought she observed a malicious triumph in his manner when he pronounced the last words. But in the next moment she dismissed the thought, and having again thanked him, commended her aunt to his pity, and assured him that she would herself reward him, and would be punctual to her appointment. She bade him good night, and retired unobserved to her chamber. It was a considerable time before the tumult of joy which Bernardine's unexpected intelligence had occasioned allowed Emily to think with clearness or to be conscious of the real dangers that still surrounded Madame Montoni and herself. When this agitation subsided, she perceived that her aunt was yet the prisoner of a man to whose vengeance or avarice she might fall a sacrifice, and when she further considered the savage aspect of the person who was appointed to guard Madame Montoni, her doom appeared to be already sealed, for the countenance of Bernardine seemed to bear the stamp of a murderer, and when she had looked upon it, she felt inclined to believe that there was no deed however black, which he might not be prevailed upon to execute. These reflections brought to her remembrance the tone of voice in which he had promised to grant her request to see his prisoner, and she mused upon it long in uneasiness and doubt. Sometimes she even hesitated whether to trust herself with him at the lonely hour he had appointed, and once, and only once, it struck her that Madame Montoni might be already murdered, and that this ruffian was appointed to decoy herself to some secret place where her life also was to be sacrificed to the avarice of Montoni, who then would claim securely the contested estates in Languedoc. The consideration of the enormity of such guilt did at length relieve her from the belief of its probability, but not from all the doubts and fears which a recollection of Bernardine's manner had occasioned. From these subjects her thoughts at length passed to others, and as the evening advanced, she remembered with somewhat more than surprise the music she had heard on the preceding night, and now awaited its return with more than curiosity. She distinguished till a late hour the distant carousals of Montoni and his companions, the loud contest, the dissolute laugh, and the choral song that made the halls re-echo. At length she heard the heavy gates of the castle shut for the night, and those sounds instantly sunk into a silence, which was disturbed only by the whispering steps of persons passing through the galleries to their remote rooms. Emily, now judging it to be about the time when she had heard the music on the preceding night, dismissed Annette and gently opened the casement to watch for its return. The planet she had so particularly noticed at the recurrence of the music was not yet risen, but with superstitious weakness she kept her eyes fixed on that part of the hemisphere where it would rise, 
almost expecting that when it appeared the sounds would return. At length it came, serenely bright, over the eastern towers of the castle. Her heart trembled when she perceived it, and she had scarcely courage to remain at the casement, lest the returning music should confirm her terror and subdue the little strength she yet retained. The clock soon after struck one, and knowing this to be about the time when the sounds had occurred, she sat down in a chair near the casement and endeavored to compose her spirits. But the anxiety of expectation yet disturbed them. Everything, however, remained still. She heard only the solitary step of a sentinel and the lulling murmur of the woods below, and she again leaned from the casement and again looked as if for intelligence to the planet which was now risen high above the towers. Emily continued to listen, but no music came. Those were surely no mortal sounds, said she, recollecting their entrancing melody. No inhabitant of this castle could utter such, and where is the feeling that could modulate such exquisite expression? We all know that it has been affirmed celestial sounds have sometimes been heard on earth. Father Pierre and Father Antoni declared that they had sometimes heard them in the stillness of night when they alone were waking to offer their horizons to heaven. Nay, my dear father himself once said that soon after my mother's death, as he lay watchful in grief, sounds of uncommon sweetness called him from his bed, and on opening his window he heard lofty music pass along the midnight air. It soothed him, he said. He looked up with confidence to heaven and resigned her to his God. Emily paused to weep at this recollection. Perhaps, resumed she, perhaps those strains I heard were sent to comfort, to encourage me. Never shall I forget those I heard at this hour in Languedoc. Perhaps my father watches over me at this moment. She wept again in tenderness. Thus passed the hour in watchfulness and solemn thought, but no sounds returned, and after remaining at the casement till the light tint of dawn began to edge the mountain tops and steal upon the night shade, she concluded that they would not return, and retired reluctantly to repose. End of Volume 2 Chapter 12